0: How I would um, explain Krishna consciousness in a general philosophical sense. <clears throat> uh, first of all, the origin of philosophy. Um, you could say that the origin of philosophy is the simple fact that when we look around the world, that when we observe the world, you could say with our animal senses, I mean, we see, we hear, we taste and smell and touch and so on, as other mammals do and other animals. And yet uh, with intelligence, we can see that there's something wrong with the picture or there's something incomplete about the picture that our senses are giving us. And so we can explain these, uh, the imperfection of the picture of the world that our senses give us by listing some of the questions that our senses don't answer. And yet they're very important questions. For example, the question, why? Why do I exist at all? And here, this is called in philosophy, it's called teleology from the Greek telos, uh, purpose. Now we can create purposes for ourselves. For example, you can decide that today I'm going to eat chocolate ice cream, which is sort of a positive idea. So but if, if you give yourself that purpose, it's not a purpose that exists outside your own mind. You can decide that today you want to eat chocolate ice cream, or you want to go to the university, or you want to change your job, or you want a different kind of relationship, or you're going to move to a different place, we can give ourselves many trivial and even more important purposes in life. But these purposes don't necessarily exist outside of ourselves. We can change our purpose. So the idea of teleology is, are there purposes in our life which are objective, not subjective, in other words, even if you don't recognize that purpose, it still is a purpose because it exists objectively outside your own mind. For example, we could say that there are um, social purposes that that exist beyond us. For example, uh, one social purpose would be that we should follow the law, we shouldn't harm innocent people or we should respect private property. you can't go into someone else's house and just, you know, with the, you can't just come you know drive a truck up in front of someone else's house in Caesarea and just start taking all this stuff without their permission and start taking everything out. So respecting the rights of others, justice, and so on. Even if someone, it is, it is the principle of civilized societies that even if an individual does not recognize that duty, For that purpose, because a purpose in a sense is something that you should do, it's a duty. And so even if the individual doesn't recognize it, the state, the government, will claim that it is still an objective duty, and if you cannot voluntarily follow it, you'll be forced to obey the laws of society because you'll go to jail. So in that sense, there are certain social purposes or certain social duties which we believe exist outside the individual. But then, of course, the obvious question is, uh, are social purposes objective, or is it just, you could say, a sophisticated form of the law of the jungle, which means that might makes right. That if you have the power, if you have enough power, then you're right. And if you don't have enough power, then you may not be right, you may be wrong. And so apart from the fact that, obviously, society is more powerful than an individual, is, is it still an objective purpose? Is society just imposing its own value on us? And so this gets into the tension between individual rights and social rights. Society has a right to guarantee the security of everyone or to fulfill certain social purposes, like justice or uh, prosperity requires certain uh, cooperation, security that a certain level of cooperation is required in society to guarantee, guarantee the security of everyone. And yet at what point do social rights interfere with individual rights and so on? I mean, this is a very old story. And to what extent are social purposes or social duties or laws objective? So this gets into, the, this gets into, this gets into a philosophical question, uh, that are there objective purposes in life? that exists beyond individual opinion, and even beyond the opinions of certain communities and societies. So, uh, I won't go into that uh, too much more, but what I, what I want to show you here is that if you just observe the world with your animal senses, so to speak, uh, it's not going to give you a complete picture because it won't answer these questions. Like, what is my purpose? What is my duty? What is society's purpose? What is society's duty? And so on. These questions cannot be answered simply by, sort of in an animal way, walking around looking for food and uh, sex and shelter and so on. So another, another uh, you could say, question that, that Mere sense perception doesn't answer as how how do things work, and I, I, I don't want to go into all that. But suffice it to say, human beings are always distinguished in textbooks that talk about these things by the fact that human beings can figure out, usually more than animals, how the world actually works, the mechanics of the world, and and that's you know we can develop technologies and so on and so forth. Although, um, I take the book of Job in the Old Testament. Although we can figure out to some extent the mechanics of the world, how the world works and we can use this to our advantage, there is um, there's another point which is uh, the, mechanics of the moral mechanics of the universe. In other words, on an individual level, if you really feel deeply in your heart, you did the wrong thing. Like, let's say, for I mean, to give an example, any of you know that novel by Victor Hugo, Les Misérables? Yes. Yes. Uh? Yes. 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 Yeah. Huh? Yes. So anyway, there, there's one key moment. It's basically a story of how someone reaches the lowest point of humanity, where he becomes what's called in English a mi- misanthrope, someone who just hates, despises people, hates the world. And now he eventually becomes a saint. So he has this one epiphany where he, he, he steals something from some innocent young boy. And because he stole from that boy, that boy would be punished, perhaps punished terribly by his master because he stole money that belonged to the master. And, and then he realizes what he's done. So, But what I want to say is, um, on, an, on an individual psychological level, someone who is not simply, a, you could say, a sociopath, someone who's not a sociopath, uh, we feel good when we do the right thing, and when we don't do the right thing, we feel bad. And so the question is, is there a universal law? In general, apart from our own psychology, our own feelings, are good and evil deeds uh, rewarded and punished by some higher powers? And if that's true, there's of course the Everyone, you know, the problem of evil, this perennial philosophical question, which is called theodicy, from the Greek, theos, God, and dike, which means justice. If there's a God, is God fair? You know, that's Job's thing. Like, what are you doing, God? And so, or, if we see what appears to be injustice in the world, that the bad guys win and the good guys lose, does that mean there could not be a God? Or at least there cannot be a God who is morally respectable. So all these questions um, arise. And and that's why people take up philosophy, because they can think. And people who have the luxury of not thinking, of course, don't have to worry about this. Uh, But those who are able to think are concerned about these issues, and therefore we enter into a realm called philosophy. And in trying to philosophize about the world, it's important to understand that most people, even if they claim to be atheists, uh, atheism, agnosticism, I think, is more philosophically respectable. Gnosis, the Greek word gnosis, knowledge, is just Sanskrit jnana, by the way. So agnostic is agnani, someone who doesn't know. Atheism philosophically, I think, is really problematic because if there is no God, then no one knows everything. And if no one knows everything, no one knows if God exists or not. So, so therefore, I say, atheism, I think, philosophically, is it's not a really intelligent position to take. Agnosticism, you could say, is more intellectually respectable. Because if, if, if you just say, I don't know, I think that's a you know, respectable position. I just don't know. Atheism, though, I think is uh, self-contradictory. So, But if you believe, and practically everyone does, that some things are really right, and some things are really wrong, like if someone blows up a school bus and kills a bunch of children, that's actually wrong. That's actually evil. It's not that what we really believe, what almost everyone believes, is not that evolution has programmed us, that evolution has wired our brains in such a way that we believe it's wrong because societies that somehow or other, by blind evolution, societies that came to believe that killing children is bad, uh, they somehow survive better. Although that's not even clear because you could say that from a strictly environmental point of view, if you had no other moral concerns, if you had absolutely no other moral concern but ecology, you could justify uh, certain types of genocide. Because it would be, I mean, the earth would be a lot better off with maybe three billion less people. (laughs) So obviously we do have other moral concerns. And therefore but my point is that if you believe, as practically everyone does, some things are really wrong. And you, because if, if you take materialism all the way, if you, it actually leads to very evil consequences. For example, one of the big fans of Darwin, one of Darwin's biggest fans, of course, was Hitler. And Hitler believed he was actually carrying out a Darwinian project Namely, social Darwinism. So, materialism has a very ugly side to it. has a very ugly side to it because as soon as you talk about a value like justice, compassion, those are values, those are not empirical objects. You can't go to a store and say, give me uh, three justices, one blue and two yellow. You know, justice is not a physical object, it is a meta-physical object the word meta in greek means beyond or after aristotle introduced this terminology so if you believe in justice and you don't and, and you don't because if it's a fact that evolution blind evolution just makes us believe this fantasy there really is no objective thing called justice compassion has no objective status we just believe this illusion because evolution makes us believe it, that means if you go and commit the most evil act, if you commit the most evil act, technically, according to the evolutionary worldview, you didn't do anything wrong. It's just that, unfortunately, you live in a society where people have been programmed to believe falsely that it's wrong. Because right and wrong are metaphysical entities. They're not physical. And therefore, if you reject, this monstrous evil worldview, and you understand that some things really are right and some things really are wrong, that means you live in a multi dimensional universe. You live in a universe in which ob- some objective real things are physical, but other objective real things are metaphysical. And therefore, a priori, by definition, Material science cannot explain everything. In fact, material science cannot explain mo- the most important things. In fact, every evil tyrant in history had his scientists. Hitler was really into science. And in fact, in Hollywood, in Hollywood it, it's, it's, like a, it's like a stereotype. It's a, it's a Hollywood cliché. For 60 years, you know, the evil scientist who usually speaks with a German accent. <laughs> Russian. Russia, the Well, yeah, Russian mafia, German scientist. So anyway, so what I want to say is uh, logical positivism, which is a philosophical position that uh, became really most strongly articulated in the 1920s about 100 years ago in Europe, the idea that the only things that we can really know to be true are things that we can empirically validate. The problem with that statement is, the obvious problem that people finally figured out is, it's self-contradictory. Because the statement that only things we can empirically verify can be, you know, we can say are true, that statement cannot be empirically verified. Because it would lead immediately to the most ridiculous form of circular reasoning. Circular reasoning means that you're trying to prove something, and so you bring in your evidence, but you give as an argument for the conclu- you give the conclusion itself as an argument for the conclusion. So it's just going around in a circle. <laughs> for example, if I say, "Look, I can prove there's a real physical world. I, look at this is a real piece of paper." But that's only true if the conclusion is true. This is a real piece of paper. For, for all you know, you could just be a brain in the laboratory of some evil genius, to use Descartes' example, and you're just being programmed to think that you're, you're, you know, you're listening to a lecture and someone's talking about a piece of paper. So I, this is really a piece of paper only if there actually is a real physical world. By the way, philosophically or epistemologically, this is called foundationalism, which I'll explain. I hope it's all right to do all this philosophy. I, I, hope you'll, I hope you'll still feed me after this, even though I'm doing all this philosophy. So if, I'm, if at a certain point I'm, I'm, I'm endangering my dinner, just let me know and I'll stop. So the idea is, and this is a point that actually Lord Chaitanya talks about also, by the way, that any system of thought, any system of belief must rest upon a foundation. It's like you're building a house or any building. You have to have a foundation. So if you claim anything is true, like to give an example I've often given, if you claim that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius, and you claim that's true, you can be easily pushed into an infinite regress, that means going backwards, an infinite regress of proofs. For example, I say water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. Someone says, prove it, dude. That's what they would say in America. <laughs> so <clears throat> prove it. So OK, I take a pot of water. I put a thermometer in the pot. I put it on the stove. And at 100 degrees, it boils. Then someone says, ha ha that's not real water. <laughs> <laughs> or that's not pure water. Okay, I've got, so I've got to bring in other chemicals to test the water. But then someone could say, those aren't really water-testing chemicals. Or that's not real mercury in the thermometer. In other words, you can be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs, and therefore you could never prove anything. Because no matter what you say, no matter what you show, someone could say, well, prove that really happened. Therefore, Aristotle, the father of modern logic and one of the early members of the Hare Krishna movement, Aristotle, although he wasn't aware of it, he was like one of our first Greek devotees. So Aristotle said that the way you escape an infinite regress of proofs, and the same thing Lord Chaitanya said, by the way. The way you escape an infinite regress of proofs is that you have to declare that something proves itself. It is self-evident. And the word Lord Chaitanya uses which means literally self-evident. So if something proves itself, you do not have to bring in something outside to prove it. And therefore, you have a foundation upon which you can prove other things. So... Uh, regarding spiritual knowledge and I want to talk about that methodology of learning about the world when you are designing a scientific experiment and by the way the latest studies show that approximately half of all the scientific experiments that are published in professional journals cheat in some way but that's another issue it's actually a major problem in the world all the cheating that goes on in science but Apart from that, when you're trying to prove something through science you have to design an experiment. For example, let's say you're trying to develop a faster train, applied technology. And so therefore you need something which measures the speed of a train. Or the speed, let's say, of, uh, of when you split an atom. The speed of the particles that are, that are escaping, like that big thing they did in Europe. So now, if you're trying to measure speed, whether it's exploding particles or a train or a runner at the Olympics, you're trying to measure, you don't go with a thermometer. If you have an instrument that measures speed, that's what it does. So imagine someone who was so crazy, who was so crazy that someone believed a speedometer is the only truly reliable scientific instrument. And this person, not only that, this person said, my theory is that nothing really exists in the physical world except velocity. And therefore, I'm going to study, take my speedometer all over the world. And then the person comes back and says, I confirm my theory. There's nothing out there except velocity. I mean, if that sounds idiotic to you, it really is. It really is idiotic. But it's no less idiotic than what science does. I'm not saying science is idiotic. I want to be clear about this. There's a lot of good science. I mean, because of applied science, I could fly to Israel. And if I'm sick and in pain, I, am, I thank God for medical science. So I'm not anti-science. Real science is good. What I'm talking about here is epistemological imperialism. Imperialism being a very dirty word, as you know from Star Wars, you know, the evil empire. (laughs) Actually, in Hollywood, empires are always evil. And that's not entirely based on history. It's just based on, that's the American idea. So anyway, imperialism or, or epistemology in Greek, episteme means knowledge. So epistemology means basically, how do you know? How do you know you know? that's epistemology in other words under what conditions can you say correctly that you really know something so if you look at, the, if you look at material science if you look at materialistic science the essence of it the, the most high, the central process in empirical science is the controlled experiment no controlled experiment no science now, this is like childishly simple, but, but to get a PhD in any field in science, you are not required to take one course in epistemology. And that explains a lot. So, a controlled experiment. Obviously, that means empirical science can only study things that we can control. And if you cannot control something, you can't study it. And control, for example, may include controlled access. For example, we can't control far away stars, we can't control them. However, we can control our access to starlight. And therefore, and so we can study stars to the extent that we can control access to the stars, and uh, in principle, According to the laws of materials of science, in principle, someday we could control them. Someday if, if, in other words, there's nothing in principle that would prevent us from eventually controlling stars and causing as much damage to the whole universe as we do to our planet, which is very encouraging, because we can not only trash one planet, there's the hope of trashing maybe whole galaxies. But now, if, if, if you take this simple point of the controlled experiment, you can't, we cannot study things we can't control. That means we cannot study things greater than us. Not only greater because our technology has not advanced enough, but in principle greater, so that no amount of technology would allow us to control those higher beings or higher entities. So things which are not only in the current state of technology, but in principle superior... So now let let's go to the G word, you know God. <laughs> we are actually very honored here today. Anyway, what? <laughs> as an American, it's impossible not to make jokes about that word, <laughs> that name, God. It's just there are two of those. Two of those? Is there another God here? Without. Oh my God! We have a. Poly- you poly, poly, have a polytheistic situation here. <laughs> so, now, when you are designing an experiment to find something or to, that, that may or may not be there, the way you design an experiment is that if this thing exists, and we don't know if it exists, but if it exists, this is probably a reliable way to find it. I'll give you an example. Uh, I remember when, years ago, when I was studying astronomy at UCLA, why was I studying astronomy? I had to take one science course, and it seemed like the least painful. So so I took the astronomy course. And um, it's interesting. At that point, astronomers were searching for what they called brown dwarfs. Brown dwarfs. A brown dwarf, basically, is a celestial body that was on the way to become a star but never made it. Like most of the people who are waiters and waitresses in Hollywood. I'm from Los Angeles, and we have the best-looking waiters and waitresses probably in the world because most of them are people that came to Hollywood and didn't make it or are still trying to make it. So I guess they're kind of like brown dwarfs. But anyway... So a brown dwarf is a celestial body that, you know, it, it was on the way to becoming a star, developing all those, you know, mechanisms of internal combustion, but didn't quite make it, and so kind of burned out, didn't become a star, and so is a brown dwarf. Now there was a theory that there should be brown dwarfs, and actually one of my professors at UCLA was one of the leaders in the world in searching for them, in quest the quest for the brown dwarf. And so they were designing all these experiments based on the idea that if brown dwarfs exist, here's how we could find them, if they exist. So in the same way, if God exists, let's say we don't know. We're agnostic, agnani. We, we don't know if, brown, if God exists or not. It's the rational question, the scientific question would be, if there is a God, how would we detect God? Science does not mean studying matter only. That's one kind of science. Science, in a larger sense, simply means the rational, systematic, verifiable search for anything. So if God exists, and we're talking about, let's say we're talking about what philosophers call the triple O God, omniscient, omnipotent, omnibenevolent. English, by the way, is a combination of Latin words and, and German words, so the, that's the Latin, omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent. The German would be all good, all knowing. that's German, all good, all knowing, and um, all wise, right? That's the German form of saying that. Anyway, so if we were looking for a God, like a real God, like a you know, major league God, that means we're looking for someone who's far greater than us. And it's not that if our technology develops enough we will be able to put God into a controlled experiment. Because if at some point of technological development you can control God, then you're talking about something else. You're using the same word, then you're actually talking about someone in Israel named God. (laughs) So no offense. So, so if, you're, if you're talking about the classic god as found in theistic religions, then you're talking about an entity who, in principle, cannot be controlled by any amount of material technology. And therefore, the obvious question is how do you approach, how do you detect or get knowledge of someone who is far greater than you? What would be a rational approach? And actually, we know this. For example, let's say you're trying to get a job with some big company. And the company, economically, socially, is more powerful than you. They have everything you want. You have nothing they want, because if they don't hire you, there's 50 other people waiting outside the door to get an interview. Now. There's a situation where, in all the relevant factors, they're in a higher position. So what do you do? Well, you go online and and you start reading about the successful job interview. And, you know, smile like this and talk like that and be prepared. In other words, you have to please them. You have to satisfy them because they're in a superior position. Or let's say, God forbid, someone is a prisoner of war. So, in other words, when someone you are trying to get the favor of someone in a higher position, let's say you're a journalist, you're trying to get an interview with some very important person. That person doesn't need you. There's a thousand journalists trying to get the interview. You have nothing that person wants. That person has everything you want. How do you get the interview? You have to please the person. In other words, the way we learn about superior things, we have to please them. We have to please them. We have to somehow get their favor. So therefore, it is rational, it is scientific, that if you are trying to find God, even if you don't know if God exists, they didn't know if brown dwarfs really exist. Still, they designed an experiment. If it exists, this is probably the best way to find it. So if you're simply trying to rationally, scientifically find out if God exists or not, you would have to please God and the process of pleasing God is called Bhakti Yoga. Mm -hmm. We win. So (laughs) game over. Well not quite yet. So you prove it. Okay, we'll get to that. I told her to ask that just make so it <laughs> so so then, consider for example let, let's go let's go to the world of mundane science. Take, for example, the discoveries of uh, that real mathematical mensch, Einstein. Einstein uh, discovered some very impressive things about the material world. And actually when he discovered some aspect of his theory of relativity uh, the New York Times was interviewing the New York Times was interviewing the head of the Royal Academy of Astronomy in England, or whatever they call it. Everything's royal there, the air force, the astronomy <laughs> of society. So In other words, like the the leading astronomer uh, in, in, um, in England, in the UK, was being interviewed by the New York Times, and the reporter was saying, Could you please explain this in a way so ordinary readers can understand it? Ordinary readers can understand it. And this astronomer said, Can't do it. There are some things. For example, if you're in advanced physics and, and, and you, when Newton published his, you know, his work on physics, it's not that they went to people like, you know, the people that were selling beer in the street, and said, hey, do you, do you accept this? No? OK, well, you haven't proved it yet, because the guy who sells beer in the street doesn't accept it yet. <laughs> so the idea is, in, in, in every field of knowledge, you prove things to qualified people. When you talk about proof, since we're speaking English, you know, the concept of proof entails, that means logically requires, three elements or three components. There must be the prover, the person who's proving, there's the proof itself, and there's the, I don't know what you call it, the provee, you know, the person to whom you're trying to prove something. So, in general, you prove things. To those who are qualified to evaluate your proof. So, if God exists, of course, first of all, you have to prove it to yourself. You have to prove it to yourself. It's interesting, just like nowadays, everyone just kind of believes what scientists say. Like if they say, okay, we've now found out this about the Big Bang or blah, blah, blah. Okay, the scientists said it. How many people, first of all, How many people believe there was a Big Bang? And secondly, how many people actually understand Big Bang Theory? So so the number of educated people, they feel that unless they believe all these scientific theories, they're embarrassing themselves. And so it's actually more sociological than it is scientific that most people accept it. Because the number of people who accept all these scientific theories, who actually understand them, is very tiny. And similarly, there are times in history where everyone believes in God because they're told to believe in God. So, sociologically speaking, you know, at many times in history, many people believe something not because they personally understand it, but because they're told to believe it. So therefore, if we talk more in existential sense, like your own life, and what you believe or don't believe, what you really understand, um, obviously, you would not believe in God unless you, well... I mean, assuming you're a rational human being, which I do, you would not believe in God unless you had experiences which can be most reasonably explained as there's a God. And that for you to interpret that experience in another way would be artificial and irrational based on what you experienced. For example, almost everybody believes there really is a physical world outside of our minds. There is a philosophical which, if you believe it, will probably qualify you to get government money for the insane, but there is a philosophical position called solipsism. Solipsism is the belief that we actually only know about the content of our own mind. All we really know about is what's inside our own head. And therefore, I know that in my mind, I'm seeing a room, there's people out there, but I don't know if the room is really there, or the people are really there, that's called solipsism, and uh, don't think about it too much or you you may need psychotropic drugs. But anyway, the idea is that if you're, if, you're an, if you're an empirical scientist, you assume there's a real physical world because why would you study a world that doesn't really exist? So if you're, again, if you're an empirical scientist, you assume there's really a world out there. You can't prove it you can't prove it empirically because that would be circular reasoning which is a logical fallacy. So, what will scientists usually say? Well, I just know it's out there. I mean, that's what what's everyone really going to say? Because most of us don't stay up, you know, at night we can't sleep wondering if there's really a world out there. Most of us don't lose sleep over that. So, if you say how do we know there's really a world out there? Because the world presents itself to us in such a way that the only reasonable explanation is it really exists. And so that's called actually tacit knowledge. There's even a philosophical term. It's also in the philosophy of science. There's something called tacit knowledge, which is not just, I know two and two is four, because I took you know two oranges and two other oranges, and I had four oranges. So if you know what the English words two and four mean, you know two and two is four. Or if you say circles are round, that's something which is, which is like deductively true. If you know what the English word circle means, and if you know what the English word round means, you know circles are round, just by the definitions of words. So, but, there are other, but the fact that the world really exists, it's not about the, you know there's a real world, not because of the definition of, definitions of words, not because of some mathematical equation, there's some algebra, good old Arab word, algebra, anyway. <laughs> but there's um, not just because of algebra or because of anything, it's just, you just know it. You, and, and that's actually, every system of knowledge ultimately rests upon a foundation which is something you just know. It's axiomatic because you just know it. That's what makes it. And you see, it's just like geometry. Remember your geometry? No axiom, no geometry. If you say for example here's a here's a geometry problem given nothing now explain a figure about which I will tell you nothing you have to something has to be given otherwise you can't reason in geometry and science and everything so just as we we just know there's a real world Or you just know you love someone. Or you just know something's beautiful. Or you just know that it's wrong to to kill innocent people. You just know that's wrong. So in the same way, one can know that there's a God. One can experience that. Because if if, if God exists, let's put it hypothetically, if God exists, and if God is not a sociopath, which is the impression you would get if you talk to certain religious people. So assuming, and I don't just mean one religion or the other, I mean there's a lot of extreme religious people who, if they're right, I mean you'd never really want to hang out with God. (laughs) Because God needs like a a long list of 12-step programs. (laughs) Anger management, jealousy, and sociopathy. I mean just serial torture and so on. So, but assuming that um, God exists. And uh, the way I put it is that God is not a religious fanatic. And so therefore, in my mind, religious fanatics don't represent God. So but if if God exists, and God is actually good and not a sociopath, then let's say God wants to communicate with us. So if you have three things, you have a God, God exists, God wants to communicate, and we exist in such a way that we are able to communicate with God. If all those three, three things are there, then we can know God. Actually, if you look at um, if you look at classical philosophy, Greco-Roman philosophy, there there was a group called Stoics. And there was a very popular idea back in the ancient world. Many Jewish intellectuals also were involved with this. There was a very popular idea based on the logos. That's, it's from the. Uh, you know this Greek word logos. We have like all the ologies: physiology, geology, thisology. That's all the logos. And so the logos meant the, the the rational explanation of something. So the idea was that there's a God who's actually rational. God has that there's a divine logos. There's a divine logos which is in the mind of God, divine reason. And therefore, when God creates the world, He creates the world rationally. And therefore, that logos, that same logic is invested, is present throughout the universe. And that's why you can have science. That's why you can have physiology, cosmology, geology, because all these different branches of science are simply trying to find the logos of different aspects of the real world. And so therefore that logos, there were some bright people actually back then. So therefore this logos exists in the mind of God. God uh invest that logos in his creation and, there, and because the logos also is in us we can discover God by discovering the logos of the creation which actually leads us to the logos and the mind of God. It's interesting because the last book of the New Testament to be written, which was written several generations after Jesus and the author uh, was trying to appeal to classical intellectuals and therefore, he started his book by saying, in the beginning was the logos, which is translated, in the beginning was the word, and so on. That, that's a whole other story, why these books are written. But, so the point is that, that if that is true, because I mean, let's say you have a child. If you have a child, imagine a parent who is so perverse and so just crazy that a man or woman, you know, somehow begets a child and then hides from their child. You can never see me, you can never know me. I mean, we're dealing with major uh, pathology here. In fact, I'll so just, just finish this point. Though. In fact, a loving parent wants nothing more than for, the ch- than for the child to reciprocate all the love the parent's giving. The child. I mean, the parents. Nothing makes the parents happier than the child growing to the point where the child really understands the parents. There can be a real loving relationship. And so, God, if God is the supreme parent, to create living beings and then hide from them forever is uh, is sick, actually. And I think, and, and so to think that way. Or, it's just, it's, it's just not what John Stuart Mill, the ph- uh, English philosopher said, how can I believe in a God who is morally inferior to human beings? <laughs> yes, you want to? Yeah, well, what you were saying before is that um, you, you know what beauty is, right? right. Like, yeah, but beauty is, everything that we know is what we were taught. Beauty uh, is different, different for different cultures. Oh my God, yeah, you just try telling your kid who to marry who's beautiful. You're talking about the east, the Western world. But if we go something, oh my God, something different. No, the big hole in the ear is for some places beautiful. However, however, okay, good point. Basically, what you're talking about is we're a good team. <laughs> so, so what you're talking about here is subjectivity versus objectivity, and what we find is that. These values like what is justice, what is beauty, it's really a balance between subject, subjectivity and objectivity. Beta beta, by the way, for those who know that. So that yes, some people may think that let's say to have a saucer in your lower lip is beautiful. However, however, <laughs> what we find is that almost everybody in the world finds that really weird. And so <laughs> For example, so, so yes, there, there, there are, but in other words, the fact that people disagree to some extent is not an argument for absolute subjectivity. So, there are certain people in the world like, I don't know, Angelina Jolie. Actually, I, 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 I didn't like her on Facebook, but I mean, I think she's nice. She, uh, she's a nice person, but um, I mean, the overwhelming majority of people in the world think she's good looking, or there's some guys. And, and, and so there is very widespread agreement. For example, if you look at a lady that becomes Miss Japan, and, and, and the Japanese are very, you know, they, they're, not, they're not like Europeans. In fact, the first European sailors that arrived in Japan, I think they were, they were Dutch or Portuguese, and they were like, you know, these white guys. And um, the Japanese thought they were hideous, like, Oh my God, these people are freaky. <laughs> because, <laughs> but what we find is, what we find is that in the modern world, now that people are coming out of this sort of these dark ages of separation, so a girl who is Miss Japan or Miss Samoa or whatever, most people in the world are going to find her attractive. I mean, I mean, there is a state of consciousness where you're very tribal and all you know is your own thing and you're shocked by seeing other things. But once people achieve a certain level of cosmopolitanity... <laughs> see, that I made a noun out of it, out of the adjective. <laughs> Sometimes you've got to think fast to make nouns out of adjectives. So once people reach a certain level of being cosmopolitan and they're not just like, I've never seen that before, that's freaky, then what we find is there is almost universal agreement on many things. Take, for example, moral issues. If you look at concepts of justice, although there are different legal systems around the world, concepts of justice tend to be the same. Justice, although people may have different assumptions, they bring different assumptions. For example, let's say you're doing algebra where X equals y. Someone thinks x is 5 and y, or some people, therefore y is 5, or, or x equals 2y. You can put different values in there, but the, the structure, the, 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 the logical structure is the same. And so in the same way, for example, here's an example from medieval Europe, and even unfortunately Europe, let's say like 400 years ago or 500 years ago, when they had these terrible wars between Catholics and Protestants. And we could talk about Sunni Shiite, so the Middle Ages is kind of... If you missed the Middle Ages in Europe, (laughs) you you can still watch it today. (laughs) In certain parts of the world, for those of you who missed it. So, but let's talk about the European version of this. Let's talk about the European version of this. If you believe, if you believe that God is basically this all-powerful psychopath... And that God, if you belong to the wrong church, I mean you may even believe in God, let's say you're Christian, you actually even believe in Jesus. But you belong to the wrong Jesus church. Therefore, you make certain somewhat subtle theological mistakes, which are actually mental crimes, because whether you were a Catholic or a Protestant, you could still be a good person. You could help old ladies across the street, you could give in charity, you could you know, be nice to children. you could be a good person. But if for certain mental crimes, don't forget, these are not moral crimes. This is not like harming innocent people or failing to do good. These are mental crimes, just wrong theologies. And therefore, for these mental crimes, God is going to torture you forever. God is going to torture you. This is, this is psychopathic, because if you think about it, what Greater evil could there be in the world than a parent that tortures their own child and forever. I mean, you hear your child screaming, crying out for mercy, and you can hear those cries of your own child for trillions of years. And nope, trillions of years ago, you made a somewhat subtle theological mistake. This conception is not only wrong, it's actually evil. It's evil because it is. Claims that God is evil. Because anyone that does that, God or human or whatever, it's evil. But let's say, for example, that because of very unusual circumstances, Europe was trapped in this Monty Python movie. <laughs> so let's say that, let's say people actually believe that. Therefore, if a false preacher comes to your town, if a false preacher comes to your town and is preaching, a slightly different theology than you do. And anyone who listens to that and believes it will be tortured forever. It is your moral responsibility to kill that person. I mean, for example, I mean, as I say, God forbid, imagine someone comes into a town and starts you know, kidnapping people and torturing them. The police go with a SWAT team, and they're not going to think twice about shooting down that bad guy. You know, it, you know, like in America sometimes they have these things where someone like, starts shooting in a school or something. And now, of course, you know, American influence, it's sort of caught on. It's a fad in other countries you know, to go to a school and shoot people. But America has made many significant contributions. Actually, America, it... Um, I mean, it also contributes some good thing. I mean, it's a whole historical thing. There practically could not be an international society for Krishna consciousness without America. That's a whole historical thing about human rights. But So if someone is really causing terrible, deadly harm to innocent people, it, it, it is the moral responsibility of the government to stop that person. And if they won't stop, to eliminate them. Again. Even though this this is like a monstrous example, but still, if you, in formal logic, we remove you know not forever but just for the moment the content and just look at the logical structure. So it's the same. It's the same uh, moral algebra that it is. The, it is the duty of good people to stop other people from causing significant harm. That we have a moral responsibility to stop others from causing unnecessary and significant harm. For example, in philosophy, there's a typical example. Let's say you're standing over a bridge. You're standing over a bridge and there's a train coming. And what you see is that uh, the bridge has broken. So that that train, if it continues, is going to go over the bridge, and hundreds of people will be killed. Hundreds of innocent people will be killed. Now, next to you on the bridge is an incredibly heavy person, like an extremely heavy person. It weighs like three or 400 pounds. So if you if you push this person off the bridge and they fall onto the railroad track, that will stop the train. <laughs> that will stop the train. However you will cause the death of an innocent person, but you're going to save, let's say, three or four hundred lives. Or you convince him to jump. Let's say there's no time. There's no time, and you don't speak his language. So... But in that way of thinking, I, I should kill God, because there's so much pain and so much... That's a, that's a different topic. We, we can get into that, but that's a different topic. So, but, I mean, we can get into that. We can get into everything. <laughs> So, um, answers are us like that. So, but my point is that let's say an example. Let's say an example where there is no extenuating circumstance. There's no special circumstance. Someone kills innocent people for no good reason. Then it's your duty, or causes, or cripples people, or tortures them. It's your duty to do everything in your power to stop that person. What if they're doing it to your own children? And so therefore, if you believe this that God is a psychopath, as large numbers of people did and still do in some places, then, you see, but again, the justice... So in terms of subjectivity and objectivity, people have a very similar concept of justice all around the world. They may have different assumptions about what is morally good and bad, but the basic principle of justice is the same. So therefore... Um, it's a balance or a subjectivity and object. As far as beauty, again, if you look at the Miss World pageant, I mean, I personally don't look at it because it's, first of all, because I'm, I'm a sannyasi, and second of all, because I just, I have even other objections on humanistic you know, grounds that this parade of bodies. So, but still, if you look at it, most people in the world would find almost all the contestants to be attractive. Some more than others, but all of them, no one's going to think, oh my god, like, uh, you know, Miss Whatever is really ugly. <laughs> I mean, that's, that's probably not going to happen. <laughs> and actually what we find is, what we find is that now, because of modern technology, that there's more and more a global village in the world. I mean, it's growing. And by the way, for people who are concerned about the, the, the shrinking of privacy in favor of security, Welcome to village life. You know, people you know, it's a big controversy, especially, you know, in Europe, everywhere, like security like like security versus uh, privacy. But guess what? There's no privacy in villages. I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about our privacy, I'm just saying that no one stopped to think what villages are like. It's just, oh, the global village. People don't have secrets in villages. So but the point here, as the world is sort of you know, getting together, and there really is something like a global community. For example, I, I saw on the news they had this presidential election in uh, Mongolia, Mongolia, which is not exactly like, I don't know, uh, Wisconsin. And yet, I saw on the news, if you look at the capital of Mongolia, they, they, they were like had this big event because someone just won the presidency. The people were dressed exactly like in America. They were playing American music. All the buildings looked like a typical American city. And they were talking the same like, political jargon, just like in America, same stuff. And this is Mongolia. So more and more, there is a global community. And what we find is there is greater and greater agreement on right and wrong. International law. The United Nations, for example, is much more important today than it was when I was a child. It's much more important. America takes it much more seriously. Before, America has thought, ah, you know, who needs the United Nations? We'll just do what we want. Now they actually take it seriously. So, what I'm saying is, if you look at people's different conceptions of beauty, different conceptions of justice, one could make a historical argument. A historical argument that much of this was based on the fact that people were separated from each other and ignorant of each other. And now that people are coming together, there is emerging in the world a wider and wider consensus about right and wrong, about beauty, about many things, about human rights. And there are bad guys in the world who you know, are against that. But still, more and more people agree. Even if in countries that may not have human rights, they want human rights. So, therefore, radical subjectivism, like everything is just subjective, is really a non-starter because the first thing is, like atheism, it's self-contradictory. Because of everything, if we have nothing but opinions, then that's also just an opinion, that there's nothing but opinions. And if no one knows anything objectively, then no one knows that no one knows anything objectively. It's like never say never. It, uh-huh. Negative absolutes are a philosophical mess. Yes? the world is out there because we know it. Why, and it's uh, very simple for most people to say that. Why isn't that so simple for people to say it about God? I know God is there. But okay. You know. Okay, good question. Because there is a hierarchy of knowledge. For example, most people know two of two is four. Uh... Probably slightly, a slightly smaller number of people know that two times three is six. <laughs> and as you go into more and more complex math, it's going to be a pyramid. And so when you finally get to, let's say, the most advanced theoretical mathematics, there's just a small, very tiny number of people that know it. And so why is there this pyramid or this hierarchy of knowledge in any field, whether it's you know, math or history or anything, because the more difficult it is to achieve something the fewer people achieve it it's like you know everybody can go out and just kick the ball around but how many people can play in the world cup and not completely humiliate themselves or have a heart attack or a stroke and so <laughs> and so the more the more difficult something is the fewer people do it and so knowing god see there's this, in a sense there's this false How should I put it? At a very simple level, like, I believe in God. Like, in America, most people believe in God. I mean, a very strong majority of people believe in God. But they believe in God, and they also probably hope that God doesn't interfere in my life. Like, it's very nice you're in heaven. Stay there. (laughs) And so... (laughs) So, as far as really developing an advanced relationship with God... It, it, it requires a lifetime of devotion. For example, if you look at Judaism or, or any religion, you'll find that there were some people who achieved a really advanced state of love of God. The type of, I mean, David, despite you know, his sort of moral hiccup there with Bathsheba. I mean, but, he's, um, but if you read the Psalms, I mean, it, it's, 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 it's very impressive. It's, it's some of the most, I think, impressive just poetry in general and especially devotional poetry, it's, it's very, very, you know, it's obviously great it's, great, it's great poetry and great devotional poetry. And so to achieve a state of, of love, I mean, even in a relationship, for God's sake, I mean, just an ordinary human relationship, you know what they say, don't feed the humans. Anyway, but let's, let's, let's say just, just in a normal human relationship, it takes so much work to get to the point where you can stand to live with someone you know more than let's say once the love endorphins wear off and it's like you know it's like someone who's totally to at a party and wakes up the next morning, "Oh my god, what am I doing with this person?" <laughs> so once the love endorphins wear off, <laughs> think, "Oh my god, what am I doing here?" So so to really to stay in a relationship, to really love a person, not just to, "Oh, you're really cute. Well, I think you're really cute." Okay. It's probably good enough. But to really have a relationship, it takes so much work. It takes so much dedication and devotion to make a relationship work, assuming it's appropriate. I mean, some people, it's a bad investment. But So, so to love God, to reach that point of purity, to really, oh, oh that's another point I wanted to make. I'll just bring, sneak this in here. Sorry on your time. But it's, um, it's obvious. It's obvious and self-evident that we are not material beings. You can do this simple little thought experiment. Krishna gives this example in the Gita. Dehi nos min dehi and so on. That every one of us can remember that you know, we were little kids. Childhood, adolescence, extended adolescence. Still adolescence, no, I'm just kidding. So you know, everyone, everyone has this experience of being a child, being adolescent, being an adult. So the body's changing. They say, like, every seven years. I mean, your skin, it takes two weeks. So when you do the mirror, mirror on the wall thing, you know, who's the fairest of of them all? When you look in the mirror, you're literally not seeing the same face you saw two weeks ago. It's actually a different face. Or let's say someone is, like, touches the beloved. Uh, You're touching a different beloved, you know, this week (laughs) than you did last week. (laughs) It's, you're literally not touching the same skin. And so, so the body is always changing. And yet we're the same person. I mean, if you're reasonably sane, then you know that I was a child. I was an adolescent. I'm coming out of my extended adolescence. And so, you know, so we know that we're actually the same person. So if A is changing and B is not changing, A does not equal B because for things to equal each other they have to have all the same properties otherwise how could they be identical so I mean we change our body we change our mind so the simple question who am I you know who, who is the person who is witnessing the body who is observing the body who is doing business as the body who is that person so then uh, so remind me you, you, you said just remind me what because I got into that thing you were saying but knowing that God is there Yeah. knowing that you're yeah, so um, if you know that much—that you're somehow some type of being who is not identical with the body—the body's like a covering of the soul—you have to have the courage, and, and, and you have to have the intelligence. Because some people, you know, what they call in America, like you know, Joe Sixpack, you know, just like you know the beer heads of the world—you know, just come home, crack open the beer, and scratch your belly and watch the game. It's so some people don't want to think some people find thinking painful and unnatural <laughs> so if you first of all you have to want to know it it's like for example there's a field called geology but you're not going to understand geology if you have no interest in it if you don't get a book on geology and so you have to want to know something so people who really want to know God, and if you think about it, even for example, they have something called GUTS, G-U-T-S, the Grand Unified Theories, where in physics, for example, there's so many equations, but is there a one equation that explains all other equations? So if you are not looking for God, here's my claim, I'll say something shocking. And, but if someone is not looking for God, and I don't mean you have to be looking for the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or even looking for Christians. just looking for God. If someone is not looking for God, they have abandoned philosophy. They have abandoned human reason. It's just like, for, because if you don't know where everything comes from, and you don't want to know, if you don't want to know, then you're not, you're not serious about, about a rational human life. It's like some people eat junk food. You know, some people go to the store and they just buy the trashiest food they can find and then, you know, poison themselves. And if you try to tell them that actually this food is not good for you, it's not healthy, or about the evils of, you know, red meat or whatever, they don't, they just, they don't want to know about it. It's like in Spanish, if someone says I'm not interested, they say, ni quiero saber. I don't even want to know about it. So, so the first question is, do you want to know? And if you don't want to know, if there is one entity which explains all other entities, you're simply not serious about human life. You're not serious about being a rational human being. You're not serious about knowledge. Now, we know for a fact that no empirical science can give us that entity. Because even if you find the supreme equation in physics or whatever, how does that explain justice? Any English sentence any English sentence that contains the word should or must is a metaphysical sentence. If you say you should brush your teeth after every meal that's assuming you have certain values like you want to keep your teeth or you want to look nice or what if you're suicidal or what if you you know. so, so the point is um, a physical science cannot explain the metaphysical. And therefore, by definition, however, the metaphysical may explain the physical. So that it's not illogical, it's not even implausible that there could be some great entity, whatever it is, that creates a world. Because if you look at the world, if you look at the world, if you look at, I was just walking today and looking at different trees, and, uh, you know, I was sober. I was just looking at the trees. And I mean, if you think about the human body, it's, it's obvious that to think that this all came about by chance is madness. I mean, it's really just almost like clinical madness. And so where does it come from? There's intelligence invested in it. What is that intelligence? Where is that intelligence? What is the nature of the intelligence that accounts for everything in the world? If someone is not even interested in that, it just means they're not serious about knowledge. And if you are interested, and you try to understand, and you're sincere, and you are not predisposed, prejudiced, against finding something which is greater than you. Because some people want to explore the universe, but, they, but one of the rules is, I don't want to discover anything greater than me, or anything that has the power to govern me. And so they are predisposed against a superior being therefore they don't find God not because there's no God but because they are not qualified they're not serious researchers they're too prejudiced they have too many prejudices they're bigoted against God and that bigotry is not rational it's not scientific it's emotional, it's envy it's jealousy so, so if you are fair minded and just look around you and see how you, for example, you live in a universe of art. I mean, look at, did you ever Google, um, actually, I shouldn't say it, did you ever Bing or Google or, (laughs) I don't want to endorse any company, but did you ever look up on your computer, um, grains of sand? You know, the number of grains of sand is almost, you know, it's it's just a ridiculously, big number. And yet, every grain of sand is a work of art. This surprised me. They're different colors. They actually look like jewels, like gems. And and, and you just look it up. You know, grains of sand, and it will, to use my old 60s California expression, blow your mind. So, if you look at snowflakes, if you look at grains of sand, if, if you look at pictures of galaxies, we live in a universe of art. There is art everywhere in the universe. Why? Where do you get these fantastically, absurdly complex structures? Where do you get all the art? Where do you get our moral instincts? The fact that in the deepest part of ourselves, you know, you may think, okay, maybe I really just am a a brain in a bottle in the laboratory of some evil genius and the world doesn't really exist. But if you think about it, what we know in the core of our being, in the core, and the deepest part of ourselves, we know that some things are right and wrong. We know that love is beautiful. We know that we should protect the innocent. We know that justice is right. So actually, our deepest knowledge is knowledge of metaphysical things. And so if your deepest knowledge is a metaphysical... How can the universe... How could a, any universe... How could a universe exist in such a way that the deepest, most powerful truths are metaphysical? How could that be the case? So, if someone just thinks and opens their mind and is not just trying to be respectable among intellectual people by saying they don't believe in God, you know, j- just for their own intellectual vanity. But if someone, if you just look at the real world, how could there not be a God? As far as the thing about, you know, theodicy, you know, the bad guys winning and the good guys losing, that was actually a problem, especially in Middle Eastern thought, where they didn't clearly understand uh, reincarnation. So, if you look at the bigger picture, uh, over a much bigger time span, it, it works out. But that's of course another topic. <laughs> so, so this bhakti yoga, I mean, it just by... It, it's so easy, probably what you say, you, know, you sing, you dance, you overeat. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Isn't that what we do? At least on these festive occasions. So, so by these simple processes, we can expand our consciousness. For example, if you… Simple process? Yes. I mean, everything, it's just my own nature. I was always disposed this way. Anything which is complicated is just a… Premature state of conceptualization, or, or, or it's a, in other words, when you really understand everything, I believe it's simple. Even if let, let's say you're you're like some advanced physicist, ultimately you get to this point where it's all very simple to you. It's really just some things go this way and some things go that way, and that's all it is. I mean, take Sanskrit grammar. Sanskrit is is one of the by far one of the most sophisticated, complex grammars in the world. When I was at Harvard, um, one of my professors had, came from Stanford, and he began. Uh, he, he began uh, in Greek and Latin, and he switched from Greek and Latin to Sanskrit, and he said it was like Sanskrit was on a different level, like in terms of complexity, for various reasons. And but when you when you really understand Sanskrit, you're fluent in Sanskrit. It's just real simple. It's like you know, shallow Malayalam. It's just <laughs> it's just some simple thing that everybody understands. You and, and, and things are like that. So. Here's an example. Here's an example actually given by a professor at the University of Chicago. He was Jewish, actually. More, I think his name was Morris Adler. He was a famous philosophy professor at the University of Chicago. Jewish scholar. And, um, for example, what does it mean on earth to say that you're going north or south? That statement, if you say, for example, Haifa is north of Tel Aviv, That statement is intelligible or true only if there is a North Pole. You have to have an absolute reference point. So because there is a North Pole, and everyone agrees to call it the North Pole, therefore, within that system, uh, Haifa is north of Tel Aviv. Similarly, there is wide agreement on the hierarchy of values. I mean, beauty. I mean, some people are widely considered to be attractive, and some people are widely considered to be a little less attractive. Or, or for example, the fact that it's nice to live in a place where there's lots of parks and gardens, and you know, or waterfront property, or whatever. I mean, I mean, there are all kinds of things. Or certain restaurants are widely considered to be good restaurants. Or you know, or, or every you know, there's almost universal human agreement that. Italian restaurants are good. So so the point is that if you think about it like this is more beautiful than that, this is more virtuous, like let's say someone who really tries to help other people, the fact that this is more virtuous than that, all these comparisons, all these comparative degrees of metaphysical things, values, really implies logically that there is an absolute pull, that there is such a thing as absolute beauty there is such a thing as absolute virtue or absolute kindness or compassion or justice. And it's actually in reference to an ultimate absolute degree that we can talk about comparative degrees. And so, again, if you really want to make sense of the whole world, not just the physical world, because the most important things for us are not physical. You know, family, Loving relationship, justice. The most important things in our lives are not physical. They're metaphysical. And so if you want to explain the whole universe, and not just a small part of it, the physical part, you need to talk about some entity, some fact, some reality, which logically explains everything. It's explanatory power. That's why in Vedanta, this uh, sophisticated theological work, it's like in, 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 in ancient India if you wanted to be taken seriously as a philosopher you had to explain Vedanta and so um, it begins with the statement that now in human life we should try to understand the absolute because let me take for example Caesarea uh, you know, it used to be a, a sort of a, a Persian thing and then it was a Greek thing and then it was a, you know, Herod built it as a client of of the, you know, the, the uh, Emperor of Rome and then it was taken over by the Romans after, after the various tragedies in the first century in, in, in Jewish history and then uh, when Rome fell, it, it went to, it, well actually Rome didn't fall, I mean Rome fell but the Eastern Roman Empire didn't, so it went to the Byzantines. you know little round of applause for the Byzantines. Anyway, so it went to the Byzantines, and then it went to the Muslims, and then it went to the Crusaders, and then back to the Muslims, and then back to... And, you know, it ended up with the Ottomans, and now it's Israel. So the political reality of Israel is something which changes over time. I don't mean to say it's not important, what's going on now. I'm not trying to... I'm not saying it's not important, but still, it, it, it's a relative truth. Like a thousand years from now, 10,000 years from now, a million years from now, God knows what will be here a million years from now. And so it's natural that we want to find something which is always true. Something which is always true. And so, and so that's the search for the absolute truth. What is always true? And because I'm obviously not the physical body, I, I'm, and I'm something beyond that, something greater than that, because the body's changing and I somehow am a constant therefore um, to understand myself where do I come from and therefore that's the next statement where do I come from what is the origin of everything and so if you say this is yours for example the big bang the big bang is nice you know it's an interesting idea which is now in fashion you know we'll have to look 100 years from now 200 years from now but for now it's and maybe even be true. Something like that is true. Not the Big Bang. I mean, the idea of something comes from nothing, I mean, that's like, I mean, philosophers figured out that's nonsense, you know, two and a half thousand years ago. Actually, what was it? Parmenides. Parmenides was a great pre-Socratic philosopher, and he said, he said that to say something comes from nothing is just a linguistic mistake. Because the word nothing, I mean, consider, for example, the English word, sorry, we're doing this in English, but... The English word something and the English word nothing. They're both words and they're both, they both exist positively in the sense that they really exist. They're real things that exist. The word something and the word nothing. However, the word something refers to an entity. The word nothing doesn't refer to anything. And so even though it exists as a word, it doesn't correspond to anything. It refers to nothing. It, it, there's nothing to which it refers, except the absence of something. So if we're talking about positive enti- entities, positive things that really exist, the word nothing has no referent. And so therefore, to say something comes from nothing is just not to understand grammar. Because there's, there is no such thing as nothing from which something could come. <laughs> And similarly, also Parmenides, he, was, uh, he also understood that uh, that, something cannot, that everything that exists now always exists. And that's actually what the Gita teaches, the conservation of energy. We exist eternally because we're souls. And matter exists eternally because, because, because something that exists, there's no nothing to go into. Now, th- I don't mean this chair is eternal, despite what the factory may tell you about it. <laughs> So, this chair is not eternal, but the energy, again to use Aristotle's word, back to Aristotle, um, he, he coined the term which in English we call substance. Literally, that which stands below, like below the surface, the real reality of something, substance. And so, the energy itself has always existed and always will exist. So, Parmenides said that everything that exists has always existed because there's no nothing to come from and everything that exists will always exist because there's no nothing to go to. And so therefore, if all these things exist, how do you account for it? You can just say, well, it just always existed. Matter and consciousness just always existed. But that means you're basically quitting the game. It's like you're not winning, so you leave the field. You want to take your ball home. So, because it's the, it's the nature of intelligence, it's the nature of human reason to try to understand. So if you say, well, it, there's no explanation, uh, that just means you gave up. That just means you don't have the determination, the courage, the intelligence to keep searching. So if you do, if you do have that courage and that intelligence determination, you have to look for something which explains everything. And if it doesn't explain metaphysical things, it's a very bad candidate. It's, you know, it's just a bad choice. We should also understand, it's just like if you live in a society in which many people are prejudiced in some way. If you are aware of that prejudice, you can compensate for it so you don't get dragged into it. Now, we live in a world in which so-called intellectuals, sort of, you know, they dream that they're real intellectuals, they are actually prejudiced against God. They're not objective. And I'll, I'll, I can give you a very simple proof of that. Again, a linguistic proof that the so called scholars, the so called intellectuals, are just stupidly prejudiced. In our culture, I don't know if, I mean, in Hebrew, I assume you must have something like that. In English, there's a very common phrase which is blind faith. Yeah, blind faith. Now, from the point of view of pure logic, from the point of view of pure logic, if you are trying to understand the truth, it is equally dangerous, equally dangerous, to believe what is false or to disbelieve what is true. For example, in in some parts of the world, including America, there are certain people based on, I don't know, internet science and certain extreme religious views that are against vaccination and so let's say i mean without going into that whole controversy let's say in one particular case the vaccination actually works say for children that if you give children a certain vaccination they it's 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 more likely they'll be healthy than if you don't give them the vaccination more, more likely that they won't become sick it's yeah the same thing well if i can not be sick i'll take it i mean believe me I'll I'll, I'll take it. So, now the point is that, so let's say, let's say, or forget vaccination, which is somewhat controversial. Let's just say a person is sick and has a life threatening illness and there is a cure, but they disbelieve it and they die. I actually know people, I, I know people who were sick and they had two religions. One was Krishna, and the other one was uh, natural medicine. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm, I, you know, I, I'm all for everything natural, I just don't make a religion out of it. And they died. They died of curable diseases. Fortunately, I mean, this is a very tiny, tiny, tiny minority of people, but they died of a curable disease because they disbelieved what was true. <clears throat> or let's say, for example, someone comes and tells you, hey, we just found out, the earth is round. Don't believe it. In other words, disbelieving what is true is just as dangerous as believing what is not true. Therefore, in our culture, we should have two equal and balanced sayings or or terms. Blind faith, blind doubt. Now, ask yourself this simple question. Is there a very common expression in our culture, blind out? Nope. So, this shows you things are tilted. In, among so-called intellectuals, scholars, blah, 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 um, in the academic world, if you believe in God or the soul, it's like, Oh, really? (laughs) It is, you know, people are going to wonder about you, even if you have good reasons. Even if you have a powerful, philosophical, experiential explanation. So even justified faith, rational faith, is not really respectable. However, if you are agnostic or atheistic, that is intellectually respectable even if you cannot give good reasons for it. Now, here's another point I wanna make since uh, I've decided to suspend your dinner. Okay, I'll just make one more point and then we'll, I'll make one more point and then we'll, uh, I will show that devotees are merciful and stop. So, it is a principle of logic that to affirm or deny, first I'll say it in a way that you, won't understand what I'm saying, then I'll explain what I mean. But it's it's very intellectual to say things other people can't understand. Makes you feel that you're very intelligent. So, to affirm or deny a proposition places you equally in the same domain of discourse. This is what I mean by that. Any questions? Just like, let's say, for example, let's say that you affirm that two and two are four you are making a claim about math. That is a math claim. If you say two and two are not five, or if you say two and two are not four for some reason, but let's say you say two and two are not five, that is equally a mathematical claim. So if you say Zeus, to use an example that probably probably won't offend anyone, (laughs) if you say that Zeus is the god of rain and thunder, and adolescent behavior. If you say that God is, is, is Zeus is the god of rain and thunder, or if you say go- that there is no Zeus, who's the sort of the weather god, those are equally religious claims. In universities, in, in universities, a professor can stand up and say, "We know that there is no Zeus." That's a religious claim. Because if you say two and two are not five, that's a math claim. If you deny a religious claim, you are making a religious claim. So, And the people are so stupid, they don't even get it. Because all their PhDs. There's an old joke in America, actually. PhD stands for piled higher and deeper, referring to certain substance. So, that in English starts with the letter S. So so my point is, in in America, you know, they have all these big public universities in which God, if you preach religion, you're out. You are so fired. So, but the interesting thing is, in, in America, you can stand up in a public university or a private university and you can preach religion all you want as long as it's negative. But if you make a positive claim, you're out. And they don't even know this because, frankly, people that get PhDs in biology or indology or this or that are not required to take one class in epistemology. And yet they're making all kinds of truth claims. And yet they they wouldn't know philosophy if they tripped over it, (laughs) as they say. So what we have to do is we have to understand we live in a highly bigoted society. I don't just mean racism or sexism and all that stuff. But a highly, that are the so-called intellectuals and academics, not all of them obviously, but many of them are some of the most bigoted, prejudiced people in the world. And this is actually, this is a scientific fact. There There was a scholar who, who wrote a book that was published by the University of California Press. Yay, be true to your school, you know, Beach Boys. And he wrote this book, which, which was reviewed favorably by in the, uh, Harvard, Harvard Magazine. And um, he compared the religious right, you know, like these, the religious right in America, with the academic left. He compared their mutual attitudes. And he found the difference was that the academic left was more bigoted and more close-minded toward the religious right than the religious right was toward the academic left. And to be more bigoted than the religious right is an achievement. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, frankly, you find some of that in the attitude toward Israel now in, the, in academic circles, unfortunately. So therefore, in this whole matter of God, and, and just to end, you have to understand the history of the relationship between science and religion. You, there's a history to it. Actually, I spoke on this at Stanford. Uh, that, that tape is at, uh, you can find it on my website, where many fine spiritual products and services are available and, and uh, at discounted prices. <laughs> I'm just kidding. So the point is, for a very long time, for a very long time, um, say if you look at the classical world uh, religion or, or not just religion, let's say uh, the- spiritual philosophy or theology and science, we're just seen as different aspects, like we're trying to find knowledge there's different aspects in life there's the moral dimension of life, the physical dimension there's the philosophical, the spiritual dimension and it's just like in a university you know, someone teaches biology someone teaches history, someone teaches music they're just different fields of knowledge. So people used to understand that to study God is just another field of knowledge. And that, so what happened is that uh, that classical civilization collapsed for various reasons, and you went into the Dark Ages. And by the way, the Dark Ages, that term, Dark Ages, came from the Renaissance people. The Renaissance be- and, and so in the Dark Ages, it was like, you know, it, it was pretty nasty. You know, people t- would take a bath on their birthday, whether they needed it or not, and so... <laughs> you know, it, it, the dark... I mean, there, now it's, of course, if, in academia, you're supposed to say there are many good things about the Dark Ages, Middle Ages, <laughs> that we have to... So, okay, I'll be politically correct, and there were many interesting things going on in the Middle Ages, which, I mean, really. However, it was the kingdom of Christ on Earth. I mean, it was religiously very fanatical, it was violent, it was... I mean, you wouldn't want to... If you have a time machine, Don't go back to the Dark Ages. (laughs) So there was nothing like science. The Renaissance, by the way, was a renaissance of Vedic culture. Because if you look at Greco-Roman civilization, it's just it's just Mediterranean Hinduism in terms of the religion. It really is. I mean, that's another topic. So so the Renaissance was a rebirth of actually this Indo-European civilization. And people became interested in science again And, and the church, you know, the one true church at that time, you know, the Holy Roman Church. Was actually one of the biggest sponsors, you know, money, one of the biggest sponsors of, this, of the new science. What happened is the Renaissance was a rebirth of Southern European culture, because of Re- Greco Roman civilization that was Southern Europe. And so there was a North European revolt against that, the, the Reformation. I mean, that's a whole topic, what the Reformation really was. But, and, and so people like Martin Luther said, you know, no science, no philosophy, just the Bible. You don't, we don't need to know anything except what's in the Bible. And so Luther actually attacked science. And so it, there's a very common, unfortunate, tragic, psychological phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> that may be the yes, I'll just finish this one point. That was interesting. So <laughs> So my point is that the divorce between religion and science, the divorce the divorce papers were filed by the church, not by science. And there's this unfortunate psychological tragic psychological fact that the abused person often becomes an abuser. And so what happened is science which was abused by religion, so that decades after Newton, after Newton, decades later, and, and not to speak of Copernicus and all that, the best universities in Europe were still teaching Ptolemy. You, you know, you know this ancient astronomy, which has been totally disproved. Some of the great, some of the you know the professors, at some of the best universities in Europe were actually writing papers, learned papers, uh, on how to recognize the true witch. So, you don't drown the wrong person. And so, that's why in the 18th century you had all these intellectual salons in Paris and London, because the greatest minds in Europe could not get jobs in the universities. And interestingly, the abused have become the abusers, because power corrupts. And so now we have this situation where you have this medieval attitude on the part of scholars, this bigoted, ignorant, medieval attitude towards spirituality. And so the real point is, not just to be intellectually respectable, respectable by saying you're agnostic, the real point is that the historical dialectic has to move forward. Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. The synthesis is to restore, to restore the, the, um, the unity of knowledge. Even academically, like at Harvard, you know, they sent me this magazine. It's, um, that's the trend, even in general academia, to reunite the different fields of knowledge, which became so separated. So restoring the unity of all knowledge means that historically we're progressing. So thinking that an intellectual, a scientist, is not supposed to you know, dabble in things like God is just basically... It's just this. It's just this stupidity. It, it, it's just. It's. It's just you know science becoming the abuser, trying to be epistemologically imperialist, and and being irrational. So, we, yeah, God is good. Anyway, thank you very much, and um, more later.